Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the America of America podcast. As always, I'm Will Milam. Before we begin today's episode, I want to uh, take some time to apologize for not having uh, episodes out these last two weekends. Uh, two weekends ago, I got back from the uh, from the Red River rivalry game um, in Dallas, so the OU Texas game. Uh, we got whomped. We got beat pretty bad. Uh, it was awful. Uh, had a good time. Got to see a lot of my friends, but man, it was bad. And I uh, I was just very tired when I got back. I was exhausted. I just didn't have the energy to put out an episode, so I decided I was going to put it off for a weekend. And then uh, last weekend, I was sick, which was uh, very uncomfortable and very unenjoyable. But uh, so my my voice and my energy levels were just not really there to be doing much podcast recording. So Anyway, I am feeling much better. Uh, OU is on a bye week. Thank the good Lord. And now I can get back and we can talk about some spooky and macabre happenings in the state of Oklahoma as it is still October. Today, we're going to talk about the uh, serial killer, the Oklahoma City Butcher, um, whom I like to refer to as the Oklahoma City Ripper because it appears that some of the crimes, well, I want to say that the crimes were uh, inspired by Jack the Ripper, who's uh, you know a notorious uh, English, well, uh, serial killer that did his work in England. We're not quite sure if he is English or not, um, but I would say that his crimes in Oklahoma City were based on those of Jack the Ripper, even though that's not quite true. But I just like to refer to serial killers as the Ripper, as if it's possible, just because uh, I was I went on a deep dive of Jack the Ripper about a year ago, and it took up a lot of my mental capacity at the time. And now is as good as a time as ever to apologize to my uh, fellow clerks at the time at the court for uh, constantly bombarding them as to my ideas as to the identity of Jack the Ripper. But the problem is, though, the Oklahoma City Butcher or Ripper, I'm just going to call him the Ripper for the rest of the episode, is uh, is kind of a, it's interesting and also terrifying and horrifying, obviously, as all um, death is, especially homicide. Um, it doesn't have a lot of facts and it doesn't really have, there wasn't a lot of, uh, good evidence or suspects or really anything to go along with it. So it's not really much information that I think can make up a full episode, even uh, an episode with as short as a form as this podcast. So before we actually start talking about the Oklahoma City Ripper, I would like to talk about a theory that I've been pondering over before I actually sat down to write it down, in which I realized I'm not even sure if I agree with it. And that is my theory that Halloween, as we understand it, the secular uh, celebrations in the United States and much of the West, and the East for that matter, uh, is really a play on the old English uh, traditions of Christmas time. And so now, if you don't want to hear me get on my soapbox to talk about uh how a lot of these Christmas traditions seeped into the American notions of Halloween. I would recommend that you maybe skip ahead maybe five minutes if you don't want to hear it. If you do, then uh, let's go ahead and start with it. Um, so we're going to cover that, and then we're going to uh, then we'll get into the uh, to the Ripper. So if you remember from the Halloween episodes last year, if you uh, just have a general, I think that you know anybody who even Google's the first paragraph of Halloween knows it. It's largely agreed that uh, Halloween, as we understand it, is a mix between Christian and pagan traditions, the pagan traditions being the Celtic holiday of Samhain, spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, so it looks like Samhain, but apparently it is pronounced Samhain. 
Samhain was a cross-quarter day, or is a cross-quarter day, as some uh, pagans uh, still celebrate Samhain. That being said, don't celebrate Samhain. Um, but Samhain was a day that would mark the changing of the season. Um, think about it as, uh, think of these days as the solstices and the equinoxes, uh, the winter and the uh, the winter and the summer uh, solstice being the shortest and the longest day of the year, and the spring and the fall equinoxes um, being those cross-quarter days. Um, and Samhain being, the, uh, being that cross-quarter day in October uh, would mark the beginning of the coldest and darkest parts of the year. The liminality of this time obscured the veil between the seen and the unseen worlds, and at that time, the time between the seasons was obscured. This, coupled with the year getting darker and colder, speared the Irish belief that the fairies and the dead had the power to visit the land of the living at this time of the year, and so on and so forth. Now, skipping over to the second premise of my argument, if you remember the Christmas episodes during Advent excuse me, of last year, you know a bit about uh, what Christmas was like in pre-Reformation England, where everybody got several weeks off of work to celebrate. And most importantly for my thesis is that the powers that be condemned the way that the masses uh, celebrated, well, the, the masses meaning the people, not the, not the Catholic mass, celebrated Christmas uh, was condemned as being a event of misrule. This, if you remember, may, emphasize may, come from the Roman festival of Saturnalia, which was celebrated in late December and is often thought to be the pagan origin of Christmas. Um, the reason I say may is because William Ward Fowler, a uh, Lincoln College Oxford historian from a long time ago, and he was specifically a historian of Roman festivals, specifically Roman Republic festivals, vehemently disagrees with this uh, characterization. But point being, in Tudor England, they would do things like appoint a boy bishop in charge of the Christmas revelries, or a lord of misrule, or in Scotland, an abbot of unreason. These revelries included, if you remember, drunkenness, debauchery, the uprooting of the social order, appearing as something that you were not. This comes from the Saturnalia tradition, where they would make the slaves in the Roman household the masters all within a matter of the game, and the idea being that this uprooting of the social order gave people an idea to express their frustrations with it, and thus letting it all out then instead of leading to some sort of class rebellion. Interestingly enough, this is very similar to the way uh, a lot of the times it was characterized as, uh, as the way that uh, Christmas was celebrated in the American slave plantations in the South. Uh, as being a time of revelry for the uh, people who were owned um, on those plantations. And the idea was that would stave off any uh, rebellious notions. Um, so it's interesting how there is that large class aspect of Christmas. But of course, that is a large digression. And not only is it a large digression, but that seems to be common in a lot of uh, medieval and ancient festivals uh, that would make their way into um, our Christian and Western secular culture. See, for instance, April Fool's Day, where it was the Feast of, all, it was the feast of Fools, 
and also the crowning of the Fool King, uh, which I think something still like that happens in New Orleans. I'm not sure uh, if anybody here from New Orleans listens to this episode, please get in contact with me. I'd be interested to learn. And also the festivals of Carnival in uh, largely now what is now uh, maybe Italy. And uh, I know Brazil actually has a big Carnival. But if you also remember these specifically English celebrations, uh, especially in America, um, were banned outright uh, by the Puritan sects of the Church of England. And in the English Civil War, after the parliamentarian victory, uh, this led an animosity towards his Christmas celebration, seen as a uh, wanton drunkenness that was unfounded in Holy Scripture. And even in the Restoration, uh, meaning when uh, when uh, King Charles came back, or Charles II uh, came back and took the throne of England, uh, many clergymen in England ceased celebrating Christmas. And in America, Christmas celebrations were never really popular, especially in New England, um, in the first place because... Uh, they were largely Puritan who looked down on those festivals, and it became less of a thing after independence because they were seen as English. In fact, although this is outside the scope of this episode, I believe that most of, I, I think that I'm in good standing here that most of American Christmas traditions are actually more German and Dutch rather than English, as a lot of the English traditions are now German and Dutch. But all that being said, what we had was a adoption of a festival in this country that was in the cold and the darker parts of the year in what brought about much revelry, debauchery, and feasting. And with the celebration of the Catholic and High Church Anglican parts of America being the, mid, uh, the mid-Atlantic and the southern regions, um, what brought about was the Feast of All Hallows being uh, November 1st and November 2nd, the Feast of All Saints and the Feast of All Souls, uh, which, in my opinion, would bring about the adoption of the of the old-style celebrations in the old Christmas mold. Though, now that I think about it, uh, there, as much as I thought this was a good idea when I first thought about it, um, there are some limitations as Samhain has its own uh, traditions and implementations that I think... Um, place themselves largely in our modern celebration of Halloween. Also, I think this argument um, largely proves too much in that, of course, uh, every single season change has some sort of festival that involves things that you do at festivals, which is party. So basically, I'm saying that people were partying at this time of year, which is almost to say that people were living at this time of year at certain points of history. But I would like to think that it's interesting that maybe we borrowed some of the old style Christmas celebrations in October as being a guy who wants to synthesize uh, the secular Christmas and Halloween celebrations, as I really enjoy both those holiday seasons. But I'm off my soapbox, and now we're going to move over to the Oklahoma City Ripper. So the Ripper's first uh, first victim, or when we became aware of the Oklahoma City Ripper, was on April 1st, April Fool's Day of 1976, when a couple of well workers who were uh, walking through an abandoned house, found a severed head in a popcorn bucket, and later found the rest of the victim's body in and around the rest of the home. Uh, they found her legs, arms, and torso. Uh, her sexual organs had been removed, uh, and this is one of those things that harkens back to Jack the Ripper, who also did that, 
except unlike Chuck the Ripper, uh, the Oklahoma City Ripper also took um, this woman's hand. One of the most tragic things, aside from the obvious tragedy of the death, was that um, this woman, whose name is Kathy Lind Shackelford, uh, was not actually identified until 1993. So for between 1976 and 1993, uh, we had no idea who this victim was. Uh, Kathy Lynn Shackelford was a uh, was an Oklahoma native and a member of the Sack and Fox Nation. Uh, if you remember Jim Thorpe, Jim Thorpe, Jim Thorpe was also Sack and Fox, and uh, Miss Shackelford ran away at the age of 17 and apparently was living homeless in Oklahoma City, which um, is very unfortunate because it looks like that made her, uh, without a support group, made her um, a target for such a monster as this. Then, uh, three years later, on April 19th, 1979, uh, a group of children playing basketball in Oklahoma City in an alley uh, discovered a severed human head, and over the next few days, the remains of this woman's body were found uh, throughout that same neighborhood where her head was originally found. Uh, Much of her body was wrapped in bags and newspapers. And uh, one of the notes of the crime scene was that, of the crime scenes, excuse me, was that there was an absence of blood as the body parts had been washed before they were left. Um, This this woman's hand, pelvis, head, shoe, and other bits of flesh were apparently found. Um, this woman was identified as 22-year-old uh, Arlie Bell Killiman, Killian. Excuse me. Uh, Killian was a 22-year-old um, African-American woman in Oklahoma City uh, who had um, been recently homeless due to a substance abuse problem uh, apparently caused by uh, physical and sexual abuse that she experienced from her father uh, and that she had been seen just hours before her head uh, had been found in that park. And over the next two months, uh, they were still finding body parts. Um, And they thought that this was a sign that they were dealing with a serial killer, as in the the killer later on was leaving more and more parts to toy with police. The last victim was found in 1986, so a full 10 years after uh, the body of Kathy Lynn Shackelford was found. This uh, was 22-year-old Tina Marcia Sanders, who was a homeless Native American woman in Oklahoma City and identified only because of her tattoos. And she was assessed to be a part of this uh, this uh, serial killer victims because they uh, Miss Sanders, like the other victims, was found with her head severed and parts of her body found near where her head was originally uh, discovered. Because of the way uh, Miss Sanders was found, police uh, believed and linked her murders to the previous two victims, uh, believing that they came from a single perpetrator and eventually, uh, or officially announced that they thought that they were dealing with a serial killer. Uh, And the reason um, that they thought this was because of similar mutilations uh, one being specific unique cuts to the lower lips of the victims and the beheadings and uh, the removal of the of the uh, sexual organs. Um, all the victims were uh, apparently young, homeless Native American women. Um, I believe the Daily Oklahoman uh, also described Arlie Killian as um, African-American 
Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure what the discrepancy is there. Maybe perhaps she was both. Uh, suspects were hard to come by. Um, the only, the only uh, suspect that they ever really came to was a guy named Henry Lee Lucas, who was an accomplished American serial killer. But this is thought to be, this is thought to be unreliable because Lucas confessed to hundreds of murders that it became very clear that he did not, uh, that he did not commit. So I think one of the most frustrating things about um, the Oklahoma City Ripper is that we really have no, no idea who this was. Uh, like, like I said, the reason that the um, comparisons with the Ripper are numerous is because it appears that this guy, who I assume it's a guy because most serial killers are male, uh, especially serial killers that target women, um, had some sort of medical knowledge to be able to uh, remove the sexual organs, uh, even though the guy that I believe was Jack the Ripper did not have formal medical knowledge. But that's a that's a conversation for another time, or unless you want to reach out, I'm happy to talk about it. I always like talking about Jack the Ripper. But, man, that's, um, that's some heavy stuff, and that happened right here in Oklahoma City. Uh, thankfully, that's been, you know, that's been... Uh, it's been 35, 30, almost 40 years um, since the last victim was found. And hopefully um, the killer is long dead and, or hopefully God has just deserts somehow. And we should all um, remember and pray for the repose of the victims of this monster. Uh, with that, I, man, that wasn't even like a happy, um, spooky story. That was just sad and macabre. Uh, but um, hopefully we will be back next week uh, for our final kind of spooky season episode and maybe tone down the uh, the morbidity and uh, maybe uh, maybe talk about something a little bit lighter. But I'm glad that you stuck around. And as always, uh, this is the America of America podcast. I'm Will Milam and I will see you next week. And thank you so much for listening.